Hi, it's Dr. Brian McDonough, and I am thrilled to have a broadcast legend with me, Larry Kane. Um, probably anywhere in the country you would know where he is, uh, because in his career, uh, he's worked network television, uh, his time in New York at ABC, but in the Philadelphia market in particular, uh, he was an anchor. I think you're ABC, NBC, CBS over the course of your career hosted a program called The Bulletin. You spent a lot of time I want to talk about with the Beatles. But before we even get into that, thank you so much for taking the time to join the program. To be with Brian McDonough. Come on. <laughs> I appreciate that. And uh, for those who wouldn't know, and I'm sure you wouldn't, I mean, I first met Larry, um, and he may or may not remember, I was in college, gave me time to do an interview for a college newspaper. Uh, and I remember how exciting it was to meet him at that time. At that time, you were working at Channel 3. Um, and we talked a little bit about your career up until that time, which already was pretty interesting. And since that time, obviously, uh, you've done many things. And at the present time, you're still covering politics for KYW News Radio. You're the, the analyst who comes in and you know all the different information about candidates. This really crazy Best job I ever had, by the way. <laughs> I don't doubt that. I, I I know I can tell by the energy you put into it and the knowledge. It, it goes so well. But I'm going to show a picture here now just to get things started right here. Of Who's that? Larry King. Who's that? Some famous people that you may know if you're watching this. And uh, another shot here is Larry with, looks like George Harrison, and Larry with John Lennon. And so... People are probably, if they don't know you, they're probably saying, what the heck? Why would this famous news anchor be hanging out with the Beatles? So let's start with that. What was the connection with the Beatles? I mean, what an amazing opportunity. If you were ever going to be encamped with any group of performers at any time, 1964 with the Beatles, I mean, you couldn't have timed it better. How did it happen? Well, it was very unusual. They had come to Miami for a very quick trip. And ironically, this is just such a weird year. 1964 was such a bizarre year. I worked at Miami Beach at a radio station that was three blocks away from the Fifth Street gym where Cassius Clay was training. Oh, my gosh. And that same year, I actually was ringside. If you look at the film, you can see me. When he looked out at the crowd and said, I'm the greatest after he, after he basically did a TKO on Sonny Liston. And at the time, I went to the airport, and I couldn't believe it. All these kids were breaking down windows in the airport terminal. And I just I just didn't get the fuss. I did get the fact that their music sounded pretty good on the radio. And uh, and they, they got off. I had a little news conference at a hotel in Miami Beach. And that was it. I met them, introduced them to, to Clay and to some Miami Beach police officers who I knew. And that was it. And they went away and they became bigger and bigger and bigger. I did see them do the Sullivan show from the Deauville Hotel in Miami, which was the first time I'd seen them in person. Uh, and uh, about March, the station's program director said, we're going we're gonna to take a plane load of kids to Jacksonville to see them at their summer concert. So can you ask for an interview there? So I wrote this note and I put in, I stuffed in, the envelope uh, perfume letters from these girls who wrote to me, mostly girls, and said, I, I, my destiny is to be with them. I need to meet them. And it, it, I just had some fun. 
I wrote to their manager, Brian Epstein, and uh, he wrote back, <clears throat> thinking that I would, because I had seven radio stations listed on my business card, well, six of them were aimed at an African-American audience. We were the only ones that played contemporary rock and roll. And so he thought that I was a major broadcaster in America. Invited me on the tour for the sum of $3,000, which would cover the airplanes, the limousines, the hotels. Remember, this is 1964. And uh, I went to my boss and said, I'm not doing this. Uh, we got the Cubans coming over from Miami. I just stopped about seven flights over the Florida Straits, watching them come over in these boats that were coming apart. They were having to save themselves from drowning. And I went, I did about 12 of those flights with the Coast Guard. Miami was in shock, like everywhere in the country, because the assassination of the president. I interviewed Lyndon, Lyndon Johnson an AFL-CIO convention in Miami. The, the Cuban exodus alone was a gigantic story. And I really, uh, you know, there's a lot of news going on. The Vietnam War was escalating. We had an election. And uh, Miami had a big crime rate then. So I said, I'm not going. Why would I want to be with a band who's here in September and gone in November? <laughs> so, and Because we didn't know. You know, if I had known the Beatles were going to be as big as they were, I would have bought a really nice camera, not the Inst Kodak Instamatic that I used for those pictures you see. And uh, so I, that was it. And I went on them and my mom had died that, that year. And the night before she died, she said, you're going to be on TV someday. And I said, no way. And she said, this be these Beatles. You're going to, you're going to want to, they're going to help put you on the map. So I traveled with them and it was, it was just, it was just an incredible experience. And, uh, it's something if I had to do over again, I would definitely do it over again, but change the parameters. It was just amazing. And there I was in the middle of this and it started on August 19th and around the first of the year, first of September, right around Labor Day, they came to Philadelphia. I'd never been to Philadelphia before. It's an interesting town and uh, my first time here. And, I, and, and just traveling them was so extraordinary. And there's so many stories I could spend three hours with, but it was amazing. I'll never forget them. I was, but those of you who have Hulu, by the way, uh, Freed on Hulu is the movie Eight Days a Week. <clears throat> you will see yours truly from 30 minutes on. And uh, Ringo said to me, I can't use the language. He said, What the so and so, Larry? You can imagine. He said, uh, This movie is your life story, also starring the Beatles. Yeah. Well, I gotta ask you a question because it's fascinating. How old were you then when you were working in Miami in 1964? I mean, because you're early in your career. 21. So you're 20. Now, you got to picture this. If anybody who's 21 years old or is involved in any career, you have a 21-year-old man who literally is meeting Cassius Clay, the Beatles. You're flying in these missions associated with Cuban refugees. You're on a major market radio station. Was that WIOD or? WFUN. A few, okay, and, and so you're doing all that initially in your career in broadcasting. I mean, it's fascinating. And, you know, it, it, for a lot of people, you'd be like, what do you do for an encore? I, 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 you've heard of the, the, the character Zelig? Yes. Story. They called me the modern-day Zelig in some stories. In 1961, I had close contacts in the Cuban refugee community in Miami. And one of them brought me down to Homestead, which is south of Miami. And they were firing guns and they had instructors. 
And I said, what's going on? She said, you can't tell anyone. You can't. And they said, we're planning an invasion. And on April 16, 1961, at the age of 18, it might be 19, I broke the story of the Bay of Pigs invasion. And they invited me to go to Cozumel because some of the ships came from Cozumel. And my mother said, you go, don't come back because you're not coming back if you go. And I didn't go back, probably would have been dead. And uh, it was, I mean, for an 18-year-old kid, it was a incredible story. That, 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 that is amazing. Uh, I mean, you know, but it is, this, this is history, obviously, and, and we can go. I'm also in 1968 in, in the London airport visiting the Beatles, and I, I witnessed the arrest of the man who would no, be known as James Earl Ray. I called him to Philadelphia during Bobby Kennedy's funeral. All this is happening all at once. So traveling, my mom was right. Traveling with Beatles was more than just a rock and roll band. It was a big deal. Well, that's the thing I want to ask you about. I mean, I know you have, and we've spoken lots of wonderful stories. Tell me a little bit about the the interactions you had, some of the, the highlights you'd say, because I know a lot of people recently have watched Get Back, that wonderful documentary where they were really you know through technology made it look like it's happening today actually but yeah. you know, they follow uh them in the creative process so you obviously saw them like that in, in many situations tell me a little bit about maybe about a little about each person i know you said that paul when you saw him if i recall you what well, you said he was very into uh there wasn't a mirror he didn't like uh he, <laughs> he wasn't a woman he didn't like it tell me what your and I see you've met him many times in the future because there's photos and things. Tell me a little bit about him and what he was all about. Well, he was just a man of incredible, intrepid desire to, number one, be loved, to be cared for. Whenever you lose a mother at the age of 14, I lost mine at 21. She died when I was 21. Uh, <clears throat> big hole in your life. And so he, he really wanted to be charming with everybody. Uh, he loved the women, uh, but uh, not in a way that you think he was involved, but <clears throat> he wasn't a uh, predator, anything like that. Um, he was a man who uh, made love to the audience with his, with his songs. And when, when I went back to watch the fans, because I was fascinated by it, every one of them was staring into space like this, convinced that one of them was in love with them. So there'd be a girl looking at it, she said, oh, it's Paul, it's Paul. And I got letters, I got about 2,000 letters when I got home. And uh, I still have some of them here. And I would say, dear Mr. Kane, will you tell George Harrison that I will meet him at 12 midnight on Thanksgiving night or something at the, uh, the, the Sears Tower in Chicago. It is time that we cemented our relationship and began our life together. Now, these people did not, this was not a joke. They believed this. And with the Beatles, unlike Elvis, it was very big. You had four, four of them. So you had Ringo, the funny one, supposedly, that's actually the most serious. George Harrison, shy. Uh, John Lennon, out of control. Paul McCartney, Mr. Happiness. And uh, everybody had their favorites. I, I had no favorites. I liked John the best simply because. He said what he felt, which was very dangerous, as we know in modern day politics. Yeah, I remember um, growing up in Philadelphia and watching television. I remember you had him on 
the news, doing the weather. It's a famous clip you can go on YouTube, I'm sure, and see John Lennon doing the weather uh, with the newscast. He, there must have been a fun side of him, too. Well, when John came, John was uh, in a, a really weird situation. In 1973, he left his wife, Yoko, who fixed him up, basically, with their secretary. And she was a young, beautiful woman, very smart, May Pang. She was 22 years old. And um, John left Yoko, and they went on what is called the Lost Weekend. The weekend lasted 18 months, and they went to California. They had some strange times with some record producers, and uh, uh, John was almost held captive by one, whose name I can't remember, uh, just died. And uh, he, uh, he really got into a bad situation with drugs and alcohol. And May Pang single-handedly resurrected his health. She brought him back to, uh, first of all, she brought his son uh, over from England with his ex-wife and took them to Disney World, Los Angeles. And she was just a loving person. And she was very much in love with him. And he stayed with her. They lived on the east side. The great John Lennon uh, shirt that says uh, New York, New York City. That picture was first taken by her. And went to the movies. Taught him how to swim. He drove again. And uh, it was just idyllic. And then one night, Yoko lured him back with the idea of quitting smoking. She went to his smoking guru. He got back, and that was the end. And he was a man uh, who said in public what he thought in private and had a lot, of con- a lot of conviction. He was also out of control. There's something he did that very few people realized. In 1960. 
Um, he wasn't tough. He wasn't gruff. He just like, yeah, you want a cookie? How you doing? He was very, very like somebody's uncle. Lovable kind of guy. And the most interesting thing about him is that he's been portrayed. The problem with history today is that history is being rewritten all over the place. There are people who want to erase the history of uh, African-Americans who've been here 400 years. Uh, there are people who want to uh, uh, change books in very affluent counties, Pennsylvania, surrounding Philadelphia. They want to change books. They want to ban books on the Holocaust. They want to ban books about the the really horrible history of race relations in this country. And the history is horrible. And they want, they want to change things. And the fact is that a lot of Philadelphia progressive politicians feel that Frank Rizzo was a total racist, which was not exactly true. He made some mistakes. And he said some things. But he was more loved by the black community at the time than hated. And because he, there's two things that Frank Rizzo did. Number one, he kept the city safe. We had 9,000 police officers. Okay. We now have on the street maybe 4,500. And the city was spotless. You could fry an egg on the sidewalk. Okay. So there are people, unlike other people who lived in South Philly, lived in the Northeast, maybe wanted to move out to the suburbs, lived in um, uh, West Philadelphia, maybe wanted to move to Upper Darby, Delaware County, but did not have the means to do so. So for those people, whether African-Americans, Italian-Americans, Jewish, Irish, for those people, he kept the status quo. And keeping the status quo meant that they could live in peace and quiet in the city they were in. Now. Tactics, that's always going to be controversial. But uh, he was a fascinating person to cover, I'll say that. He called me Larry Kane all the time. Larry Kane. Everybody would come up to Larry Kane, Larry. Not Larry, but Larry Kane. He was, I'm not attacking anybody who has their own opinion these days, but history is tough to rewrite. I mean, we can write a lot of history. If you take a look at the way Philadelphia developed, there was a wonderful mayor here named Richardson Dilworth. Mm-hmm. There's a plaza name for him at City Hall. And he was one of the most fascinating people. In fact, I think in 10 years, they're supposed to open up a time capsule of an interview I did with him in 1972 or 73, where he just blasted John Kennedy. Because, you know, Gilworth was considered Kennedy's main opposition for president. But he was handsome, he was wealthy, uh, and uh, it didn't happen. But he, what he said about John Kennedy on those tapes is everything that was written about him later, about the private life he had. And I hope I, I, hope I lived to hear because it's great. Isn't it? I but, hope you're to see it. Yeah, that would be so. You know, you know what's on there before it even comes out. So you, yeah. Here's the most interesting part of that, of that whole Rizzo and Philadelphia story. There were two people here, there were two mayors. One was named Joe Clark, he was from Louisiana. And he became the mayor and Dilworth. And they're very applauded for helping Philadelphia become a modern city. But there's one thing that no one talks about. They built Society Hill. And in all the uh, incredible articles over the years, if you look back at the press, you see the fact that, that the, the, the area from Vine, maybe Vine or 
Market of Chestnut, down to uh, uh, South Street, a little further down, and and the river to 20th Street or 15th Street to Broad Street uh, was uh, redone. Beautiful homes were built. What that did, though, was create an exodus of 350 to 400,000 people of black or brown color. And they wound up in North Philadelphia. And in the same process, in a couple of years, the Jewish people, the Italian-Americans, the Irish who lived in that neighborhood, moved to the Northeast. Okay? And, and North Philadelphia was left with a vacuous economic horizon and it became, it was called the ghetto. You know, living in the ghetto, the great Elvis Presley song. And, you know, I always felt that Clark and Dilworth were given too much uh, credit and not enough critique for pushing people out of their homes and developing this, uh, this beautiful, these beautiful townhouses where people still live. And by the way, everybody has a right to live as, the highest quality of life that they can. But I thought that was a bad time in Philadelphia history. Mm -hmm. People should think about it a little more than they do now. I'm with Larry Kane, uh, legendary broadcaster. Uh, you tell a race in our conversation, so many different people he has touched or been touched by in his own life. And, you know, I want to wrap up the Beatles a little bit. Um, when John Lennon, I remember watching Monday Night Football, like so many Americans, because back in then, everybody watched Monday Night Football. They watched Johnny Carson. <laughs> they watched certain programs. And I remember when Howard Cosell announced uh, that John Lennon had been shot. I mean, as just a music lover person living in the country, I was saddened by it. It must have really, uh, really pierced your soul. It probably, uh, what was your feeling when you heard that? Well, it was really horrible. There's two times in my life I almost lost it on the air. The first, the second was when Frank Rizzo died because, you know, he was a great part of my career in terms of covering news for better or for worse. I mean, he used to rip me apart asking me hard questions but yet everybody identified me with him and uh, I, I did not have the same politics but i had admiration for what he stood for at the time not for everything the other was when john lennon died and, he, and let me tell you there's there a, 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 a producer who worked with us at wabc who had a motorcycle and uh, he was uh, going home that night and uh, his motorcycle was hit by a cab. And he suffered tremendous injuries. So they took him to the same hospital that John was taken to, almost arriving at the same time. And he was laying in bed and he saw John coming in and he heard the screaming and he saw the body and three bed. He reached for a wall telephone and he called a very good friend of mine who actually took my place there in New York, Ernie Anastas, an anchor, long time anchor. And he said, I think John Lennon's about to die. And he said, I think he is dead. But Ernie was about to go in the air when he called me in Philadelphia to tell me. So as soon as Howard Cassell, by the way, nobody will nobody will tell you this, but this tape of Cassell getting the word and saying, nobody cares. Really? And Tom uh, Merritt said, you better put it on. Okay. Wow, that's incredible. He's kind of an arrogant guy, but, you know, big, big, big personality. And uh, so I went on the air and I just, I lost it. I mean, for the fact that somebody who just 
taken down like that. A guy who, in his own way, came from a middle-class family, a father who was never there, brought up by his own aunt. His mother had many social issues. Uh, and uh, uh, he was a dreamer. He was a dreamer, like he said in the song. You know, imagine. And uh, I, I just couldn't, I couldn't deal with it. Mm -hmm. uh, so I did, and life went on. I've been up to Yoko's place a couple of times since. She always had has me sit in John's chair in the kitchen, and she stayed there. I don't know how she can do it every day. And uh, you know, she's a very interesting person. She did not break up the Beatles, but but he's he was a very instrumental person. When he came to Philadelphia that day, seventeen thousand people showed up at forty one hundred City Light Avenue. And then there were more through the weekend. And that's why Rizzo sent the stakeout squad to you. And they were concerned about security. Sure. He stayed on the air forever. And then he went on the air. He walked in the studio. And Jim O'Brien was homesick. And he called them and said, I can't believe this. I just can't believe this. And uh, there he was. And uh, he was doing the weather. And then he sat on the set at the end when I signed off. And I said for uh, Joe Pellegrino, Jim O'Brien and John Lennon. I'm Larry Kane. Tonight, thanks for being with us. Wow! So it was just everybody looks and say, "Wow, that's a weird thing," uh, but it was a great experience. Covering this community was also an incredible experience. Watching the uh, changes in the community over the years, and also watching things that didn't change. For example, what hasn't changed? Philadelphia School District. A little bit, not enough. And I go back to the story of a young lady that I haven't talked to in a while who entered a contest in the Philadelphia Inquirer to write an essay about the person you'd like to spend the most time with, a well-known person. So this young lady, I won't, I won't say her name right now, wrote and said she wanted to meet me and, and they had a breakfast. We met all the people. There was President Penn. I think the mayor of Philadelphia at the time, I, I can't remember what it was. It might have been Rizzo, uh, Rendell, I'm not sure. Uh, I think it was Rendell because it was in the 90s. And uh, we went to Wanamaker's or somewhere. We had breakfast and, and I said, what would you like to do? She said, I'd like to spend a day with you. So I got to know her and she was lovely. And she went to a school in, uh, in Germantown, <clears throat> the Henry School. And uh, she asked me to be her graduation speaker, which I did. And then I got a call from her mom. And her mom and grandmother were her whole life. And the mom said to me, she's supposed to go to Germantown High School, but I will, I will find any suburb because I will, I will not allow her to go to Germantown High School. I'm trying to get her into Girls High or Central. So I took it upon myself to call the principal of Girls High. And I explained to her that and it's true that many people who were brought up in minority homes uh, have problems with the SAT tests and the state the standardized test. I did. I, my, I was a hard, I had a horrible SAT score. It was amazing that I even got into college. Never finished. It's amazing I got in. And uh, so I, I told the, the, the principal, I said, I'll do whatever you want. And she let her in. And then she asked me to speak. I don't know what happened after that. I think I did speak. But the fact is that her life was changed by doing this. She had a, she had an advocate. How many people in Philadelphia life 
going back the 56 years I've lived here, how many people have had the, those kinds of advocates? Mm -hmm. I had no guilt about that. She was one person, but I felt good that I could help her. Good opportunity. Yep, you wanted to help, and you know, having um, a role like yours, it's hard for younger people. I haven't talked with my kids about it. They don't understand the power of television. 25, 30 years ago when it was a limited number of stations. I mean, now everybody's on, everybody's on video. <laughs> it doesn't, but at that time, if you were an anchor or a trusted part of the community, it really meant a lot more than, it, I don't even know if you could imagine it happening today because I don't think anything really has that much power. Well, I'll tell you something, when I went on the air, um, I, I went on the air when I was 25 years old as an anchor. Okay, I'd been in the city for a couple of years covering the streets. So people thought I lived here forever because I really knew the street. I mean, I went to neighborhoods that my members of my family had never been to. Okay, good neighborhoods, bad neighbors, tough neighbors, race riots, uh, uh, protests. This was, you know, the late 1960s. And uh, I remember a, a young man invited me to a... Uh, a speech that he was making with a couple of very well-known people, Abby Hoffman, who was a very famous you know, antagonist against the Vietnam War, and then and in, involved in the Chicago 8 at the Democratic Convention, um, Jerry Rubin. And one of them was a fellow named Ira Einhorn. And Ira owned newsstands around the city, invited me to come in. So I walked in with the camera crew to a place called the Ethical Society, which still exist on Rednell Square. And the minute I walked in, I realized I was being set up because Ira and his friends went out there and they said, the fascist press has arrived. And everybody started throwing things. They went after the cameraman. And I realized he set me up. And so in 1968, it was very much like it was today. Think about it. If you were pro-police, that had to mean you're uh, for the Vietnam War. Mm -hmm. Okay. If you're against the cops, that meant you had to be against the war. No connection. Absolutely no connection. Okay. The Chicago riots, I was right in the middle of them, the Democratic National Convention. I happened to walk into that street at the wrong time. I'd never seen anything like that before in America. And three months earlier, I was in Paris and watched the riots there. And you know, there's just this is this time is very similar to that time. Richard Nixon talked about the silent majority. Who was the silent majority? There were white people around the country, and they got the message. Okay, the silent majority, they got the message. So this was a time of racial discord, personal discord, a lot of families arguing with each other. Very, very similar to our time today. But there's one difference. There was news. Now the news is dead, dead, real news. And uh, I, I have some information about how this all happened that I'll share with you. But now you have one network that, that defended a guy who shot and killed an African-American teenager outside of Orlando, Trayvon Martin. You had the other network who, who uh, defended the kid. You had Fox and MSNBC fighting with each other. 
And that really helped the country, did it? really brought us together. So now we have the same thing. Is there any place you can get news from outside of maybe KYW radio? And look, I think local news probably gives you the best shot today at, at a fair report. I, I want to ask you about that. I was talking with somebody, and, and you'll know much more about it than I do, but I tried, I've studied these things and spent part of my career in it. And I remember studying about the fairness doctrine. And I remember going into broadcasting and every story I did, I was told, and to this day, present both sides. Try to be fair. Of course. Your job isn't to make a decision. Certainly, I'm going to tell people not to smoke. I'm going to tell them. But, but really, when I'm covering a health story, it is not for me to make the decision. It's to present facts. This has changed. And, and I think people aren't even apologetic about it. They just know there's numbers they have to get, ratings they have to get, money they have to make. And they're searching for an audience. And they are. They are something. It's very commercial. All right. The MSNBC crowd knows that their audience is fairly liberal, some progressive. Uh, the Fox crowd knows what it's doing. Incidentally, the Fox News itself was not really touched until recent years. It was the Bill O'Reilly's and the Sean Hannity's who eventually took over the network. So, but there's a, there's a story here that very few people know. One of my great heroes in my lifetime was John McCain. And John McCain was vilified by Fox when he was alive and when he was dead. And John McCain was truly, to me, a guy who could endure what he endured for the sake of his country it was just amazing. So I always admired him, still admire him, in death as I did in life. And uh, I found out something about John McCain. He didn't realize, but he was the, uh, he was the uh, father of the modern news operation. He was the uh, either chairman or vice chairman of the Senate uh, Communications Committee. And he's the guy who helped push through the legislation that brought unlimited ownership of television and radio networks. Unlimited ownership of radio and television stations allowed Fox to go on the air without any fairness doctrine at all. Okay. So in, in a sense, he would, I'm sure he didn't ever expect it was going to be this way. He, he brought in the era of uh, divisive broadcasting. Now, my feeling is if somebody's telling me a lie over and over again, Whatever it is, whether it's Rachel Maddow or uh, uh, that guy, uh, Tucker Carlson. Mm -hmm. okay. If somebody's making the news up every night and trying to lean me a certain way, I don't want to watch them. I, I mean, the only, the only networks that really, the three network newscasts are not bad. Okay. CBS, NBC, and ABC. And this uh, Shepard Smith is very good on CNBC, straight down the middle. Uh, but it's hard to get that. And, and, and as you know, most people make their decisions today based on the visceral feeling of how they feel about a candidate. That's why President Trump was successful in being elected. And as I said, and I'm not talking only about him, but as I said, if you are in a situation where you're getting bad news every night, fake news, uh, it was, it was Joseph Goebbels, the propaganda minister who created the Hitler menace in the world. He said, and the quote is right there, if you tell a lie long enough, 
it will be the truth. Okay, whatever it is. And by the way, it's my opinion that the far-out progressives are just as bad as the far-right-wingers. When you think about it, think about the fact that both sides are telling you, do it my way or go away. They're not saying, can I listen to a debate? Can I have a discussion? I mean, the greatest show in the world would be if somebody could put it together to put uh, an MSNBC up against uh, anchor up against a fox anchor and duke it out every night. That that would be a real show. Okay, and then who's in the middle? I mean, if you watch the CBS Evening News or Lester on the NBC News or uh, uh, the ABC News, which reminds me more of Action News in the beginning than any of the network newscasts. If you look at them, um, they're pretty straightforward. You know, and sometimes if the if you don't like the news, if you don't like the fact that Trump has been raked over the coals about January sixth, if that affects your opinion and you can't believe that he might have been involved in it, then you have a problem. If you're listening to Rachel Maddow and she tells you that uh, progressive politics is going to change the country, people are afraid of both ends, and the great middle. Is usually the, the group of people well, that elect the country. I want to ask you that because you also, in your career now, especially, and you can just tell, you know, I'm sure our viewers and listeners know the passion you speak with, and you know far more than I do. But if you look at politics, at least my take on it is you're going to have extremes on either side, and, and there's going to be there. But it seems to me that the way our political system is set up is that you have to appeal to the extremes in the primaries, and it almost takes out anybody who could be moderate from running. I mean, I think most Americans, if you took all these different issues, probably could be liberal, conservative, progressive, depending on what they're talking about, it would all vary. I saw it in healthcare. I mean, obviously I know what I know in healthcare, and I saw where there were people who wouldn't wear masks or were against vaccines, there were people who believed everyone should have a mask at all times and people should not have control. And there was everything in between when, in fact, there was a reality of the health issues that were there. But the middle never seems to get that voice. It well, seems to be the extremes. It's government by minority. It really is. And what, what you have here is it, very passionate issues. First of all, COVID was a very, is, is and was a very dangerous disease. A guy my age is highly vulnerable. I never got it. My wife got it once uh, about a month or two ago. It's pretty mild. But I, I masked up. I did every booster. I will do everything I can. I can't tell you how many stories I've heard locally about people who have relatives, fathers, mothers, children, grandchildren. Who refused to get vaccinated and died. And to me, that's a heartache. So to politicize that issue one way or the other, it's pretty bad. And you as a doctor must have been pretty shocked by what was going on. I mean, I mean, without getting into it, it probably the, without a doubt, the toughest thing in my entire career. Yeah. Because early on, we, my group, decided we trained young doctors. We were going to go into the rooms and not have the residents and young doctors go in. And we knew what the risks were, there were no vaccines, and you were battling with people who clearly did not believe that this was true, yet two rooms over, someone was on a ventilator dying as a result, and you couldn't get through. So 
it was you almost had to you almost have to go into a um, compartmentalization of your mind where you just say i'm going to focus on trying to help these people and that's all i can do but to your point the misinformation that was out there all over the place was incredible and when we see that and you and you see what's going on you do long for the days when there could be objective news do you think we're ever going to get there again do you think it's i think so i think uh it, it all goes to cycles but i'll tell you what's going to happen now the roe v wade decision by the way i have no problem with people who are uh, pro-abortion or people who are anti-abortion everybody has their viewpoint and from a religious standpoint uh, from a life standpoint it's very important to a lot of people but a lot more people in the country are more open about roe v wade than are closed and so what you have now is a supreme court that's literally going to take issues is what they call a parallel agenda of the supreme court normally the supreme court decides what to, to argue about by issues that come before them so they have now accepted all the issues of the conservative agenda. Now, the reason Roe v. Wade is different than, you know, we, we in the Jewish community like to say, why is this night different from any other night in Passover? Well, we, we eat unleavened bread to uh, crystallize the visit, to travel out of Egypt for the Jewish people because they couldn't have real wheat. And why is this election cycle different than any other? Because Supreme Court is dealing with issues that have direct impact on people. You could talk about pollution, and we know that there's a cause and effect. But when you talk about what a person can do with their body, whoever they are, I mean, a full 40% of Republicans are angry about Roe v. Wade being overturned. This is a hot issue. And yet, you know, I understand I have plenty of friends who are, uh, I hate to say pro life and pro choice because they're really misnomers. If you're pro-life, that means you would not want anybody to shoot somebody. Or if you were pro-life, you wouldn't want guns on the streets. Isn't that correct, I would think? So the day before they came down with Roe v. Wade, the Supreme Court opened the country to concealed weapons everywhere. <laughs> Is there a contradiction there? So let me ask a bigger question. The question. I'm not, uh, yeah, I'm, well, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. My friends will say, "Oh, you're a liberal of pinko and all that stuff." Uh, believe me, I am straight down the middle when it comes to news. But when I see this hypocrisy, and here's another one: you're very involved in uh, a lot of things. You're very involved in the community. You have family. You are probably the most respected, one of the most respected broadcast uh, doctors in the country. People don't know it here, but uh, in New York as well. Wins, right? Yes. Okay. And uh, you, you have a sensitivity to this. If you were looking at, at a, a decision on whether a, a woman can have reproductive health, uh, you would have to look at the big picture. The Roe v. Wade means that a lot of people will not get help for other things at clinics. Uh, the Roe v. Wade decision is going to really topsy turvy the country. And it's really sad because it's such a, such a, now the other issue they have is gay rights. So <clears throat> in reality, um, 
we have a very interesting scenario on the Supreme Court right now. We have the first black female who's married to a white woman, white man, okay? We have the first black, second black after uh, the great man years ago, Clarence Thomas, who's married to a white woman. So what kind of nerve would it take to say, you can't marry someone because they're not your same sex? They're, they're not the sexers for their system. Are they going to ban people from interracial marriages? No. And I don't think they're going to get involved at all in the anti-gay movement. I really don't. Life's changed. You know, what's his name? Uh, the Congressman Barney Frank. I, a real breakthrough guy for uh, gays in this country. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I did an interview with him as he was about to leave Congress. Actually, it was done at the Constitution Center. And he said, you know, I think that the bias against gays is the meanest thing in America. I said, first of all, if two, two men are happy, <clears throat> two, two women are happy together, and they're living a fruitful life, and they're productive, why break them up? The worst thing that you'd have to do if you had a gay neighbor is maybe buy them a wedding present. <laughs> and he's right. You know, so society's really changed. I do want to ask you one thing because you cover it, and then, and then one final question to wrap it up out of respect for your time. But the first question is I've always, we're being in the healthcare environment and being in health, we always feel we don't know. We're flawed as human beings. We try to figure things out and we grow as doctors. We have a practice and we practice and we try to be better. No one's perfect. I've always struggled. I mean, I follow laws, but I've always struggled with laws. I've even struggled when they say this is a precedent because it's flawed people making flawed decisions about issues. And why would any particular law mean anything when it's flawed people saying it? How can it be absolute? How can you say We've ruled on this in rules. I look at it, okay, so somebody talked about it and it was a flawed human being who did the best they could at the time. And they make like they make it sound like it's absolute. And whereas in, in healthcare, it's not absolute. You do the best you can, and you change and you adjust. What is it with law that they they hold well, on to these things? First of all, there's a lot of religious intensity about OV Wade one way or the other. Okay. And and I, I don't take a position on it because I think that people are smart enough to figure it out. But I want to tell you about two billboards that tell you the whole story of America, okay? 1960, I'm riding down Dixie Highway. They still call it Dixie Highway. Yeah, they do, yeah. And I'm riding home from work, the radio station. And a senior in high school, working a shift at night at the radio station. And the first billboard I see is this gigantic billboard of John Kennedy's face surrounded by the Pope's habit. And it says, do you want Rome to rule America? Pretty hateful. Catholics, even today, are not treated as well as they could be in the South. Okay? A very uh, Christian, Baptist kind of Methodist. And that's, you know, that's just the way it was. Mm -hmm. The second billboard told, also told you a lot. It said, impeach Earl Warren. 
Well, Earl Warren was the governor of California and a Republican. And in 1954, I may be wrong. As you get older, the years start to fade over. 1954, the U.S. Supreme Court, led by Republican conservative Earl Warren, voted, I don't think unanimously, but large vote, six to three or something, that the schools of Little Rock had to be integrated. And at that time, the governor of Arkansas, Orville Faubus was his name, locked the schoolhouse door. And White Eisenhower, Republican, a man who helped us win the war, the architect of the D-Day invasion, uh, sent the troops in to enforce the Supreme Court decision. And those kids got, got into that school. So when you look at political decisions, they have consequences. Mm -hmm. Election, now, now there's a great thing, incredible thing happened after that. Since 1968, in our country, from through 19, through 2020, through 2020, the Republicans have won the white vote in every election, the majority white vote. What happened? Well, the South was ruled by Democrats. Once Lyndon Johnson had the Voting Rights Act and the Great Society programs, and the equal opportunity programs. Once all that happened, the Democrats lost the South and the Republicans took over. And, and even Bill Clinton, who had a real grasp for the South, lost the white vote. So what does that say about where the country's come and not gone? Okay, the second, the, the two billboards I'll never forget. And the other thing I'll never forget is the way I was treated and when I moved to Miami, Miami is viewed as a Jewish enclave, which it really isn't at all. In fact, uh, uh, the, the Cuban Americans that live there now, now in their second, third generation, have done remarkable things in Miami. It's a great international city. It's exciting. A lot of crime. A lot of bad driving. We have a lot of that too these days. And uh, uh, it would, to me, uh, to to watch the the uh, encouragement and philosophies of another group, another group of immigrants, really make over a state was extraordinary. So these are these are things that we can't deny in this country. Right now, Florida is a flashpoint because half of America used to live in other places. So they're coming down. They're bringing their philosophies with them. That's kind of a strange place. Both of my brothers live in Florida, not because they moved there, because they grew up there. And uh, I just think that it's the saddest part of, of reading the news is to see this, this, this violent extremism that's going on. Mm -hmm. the, the, the abuse of, I mean, I know what an AR-15 can do. And it's really, a, it's a body blaster. And uh, there's no reason for anybody uh, who's not a cop or a member of the military to have a soldier. Hunters will not use it because it's unfair hunting. Hunters like like to treat their prey with respect. Mm -hmm. So that's that's a scary thing to me. The other thing that's scary to me is how people will not move or budge from their positions. They don't want to listen anymore. Yeah. And, and and by the way, that goes for Democrats as well as Republicans. That goes for independents. 
Everybody has, has an opinion on everything. One thing I've learned in the last couple of years, everybody wants my opinion on everything. And I try to be as rational as I can. But one thing I've learned is that the political system is broken. The money in the political system is broken. In fact, it's very good for our business because television and radio make a lot of money on political ads. But it's complete. I mean, look, look what happened in the primary, the Republican primaries, the Democratic primaries. Uh, Doug Mastriano won the uh, Republican primary without money because he had people with passion, whether you like their points of view or not. Uh, he's, got, he's got a hard road to the fall. But the fact is that the big money has made people like uh, uh, Dr. Oz and David both fine people, I'm sure, uh, get very close to the power system. And, and they even live here. So it's just an interesting kind of thing. By the way, everybody says, how can you do it? How can they run in Pennsylvania? And, and the fact is that I'm on the air with Brian McDonough. I'll call you right back. I don't mind giving you a plug there. Uh, no problem, thanks. Uh, the, uh, the, uh, the most amazing thing about all this is that I really feel that we're going to come through this. And I always feel there's always a balance. I mean, right now, Joe Biden's having a rough time. It's obvious that this administration is not together like it should be. Uh, I, I can see, I mean, look, I'm his exact, almost exact age. And I know how I feel. And I, I, I know him very well. And he's a wonderful man. And I'm sure that there's a lot of problems there right now. The administration's not supporting him well. And uh, we'll see what happens. I just hope he stays healthy, mm -hmm. and I hope his spirit continues. As far as the Republicans, there's a lot of choices out there. There's a lot of good people out there. As far as the other Democrats, there's a lot of choices. This country always comes around. I have a neighbor who has a big sign in front of his house that says, there's no hate in this house. I like to see that. I like to see Americans flying the flag. I love patriotism. All of a sudden, Flying the flag is un being unpatriotic. It's that all about. We've come to this maze of imagery and, and, and conclusions based on pure emotion and not the real truth. And I hate to see this. I mean, I, I almost cried when I saw Congressman Kim, who's an immigrant from South Jersey, cleaning up the Capitol for a time. I couldn't believe that that night. And I know people were there, and I'm scared they were. And uh, I just think we're better than we look right now. Don't you? I think, you know, you have talked, Larry, about all sorts of issues. And what strikes me, and a lot of these are hot-button issues, well, what you presented was both sides of every issue, which I think sum summarizes you. You've assessed it. I'm sure you have your own personal opinions on things, but... You've assessed it, and you're trying to present, even here, a way for people to make decisions. You talked about Roe v. Wade, hot-button issue. But if you listen to what you said, nothing you really said was offensive. You just explained the background of it. You explained the background of the political system. You know, And I think that is really the core of why you were so successful and have been so successful in your career, because I think you, you, say, you say obvious things when we should, but you allow people to make an informed decision. And I think that's probably the greatest thing I can say about you. You know, 
I appreciate that. My sources that I have politically are almost more Republican than Democrat. I talk to everybody, and they know that they're going to get the straight deal on radio from me. But there's one thing I want, I want you to think about. In this country, as you know, I did a series for 45 years on adoption. You know, mostly Thursday. It started out as Thursday's child, went to Wednesday's child, then it became Sunday's child, <laughs> every day of the week. But I, and KYW Radio let me continue it after I ended my television career and uh, continues today. And adoption is, 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 is a special thing. I wanted to take home these kids, every one of them. I saw their frailties. I saw how they felt. And we're very lucky. We have a lot of grandchildren and children. We have a wonderful family. But I want, you, I want you to hear about the greatest hypocrisy and contradiction in American life today. People who are anti-abortion should be pro-adoption. Okay, because adoption is a wonderful way to deal with a child that you may not want to have. Mm -hmm. It's hard. You, you have to bring it to term. You go through the emotions. But I can't tell you how many kids I've met and how many couples I've met whose life changed with adoption. Absolutely. All right. So in, in the 26 states that currently ban abortion or trying to, only one of them has increased funding for adoption information. And I'll explain to you what it is. So when a woman walks into an abortion clinic, and in Pennsylvania, they are required to tell you that you have this option. Okay, But the money is not there to promote adoption as an answer. So if you were pro-life or anti-abortion, uh, anti wouldn't you want the people to know about that option? Mm. And you must have, over the years, you must have. Oh, I, I, I've come home. Where the, the lives have changed with that, because you're right. That was very well known. It was, it was, it was promoted. I will make you laugh. One year, I was, in, you know, in these Emmy Awards, I was up, and I was up against Larry Kane, and it was Thursday's Child. I'm like, I'm not going to win. How do you win against option? You know, but but the point was, what you were doing really made a difference. And I think you're right. I think. To give children that opportunity to have a family when you can and to provide that support, even if it's big brothers, big sisters, but it, it makes such a huge difference. Well, decision of a lifetime. And you know something I'll never forget, Channel 6, we did some heavy-duty journalism in the beginning. We had a show called Public Bridges, Private Riches. It was about how the politicians decided where the high-speed line in South Jersey was going to end. And it turned out it ended in Deptford, Township. And Denver Township was where everybody bought the land before the legislation went through. Wow. Okay. This has really happened. Right? No, people forget. We also did a show called Decision of a Lifetime, which in 1973 was revolutionary television. It was a primetime special of a woman getting an abortion. Now, obviously, some things were not shown. We saw the process. Won all kinds of awards. I don't really care about the awards. People got to see it, and the woman was very happy that she had the opportunity to do this. And other people were outraged. Outraged. Cardinal Crow called, and he said, "Larry, what are you doing?" All right, and uh, I can understand that, but we showed what it was like. The point is that if you if if you're going to uh, oppose a woman or her husband and a woman making a you know, husband and wife making a choice 
about whether to have a child. You're changing their whole life. So if you're going to do that, at least give them the other option. At least let people know that they can do this. And I know people who've adopted and have done open adoptions, and they're very successful. So I don't know anybody who likes abortion. How can anybody like abortion? The issue is whether a woman or the government makes the choice. That's all. One last question. Greatest story you ever covered. What would be the number one story in your career? I'm sure you've been asked this before, but the number one story in your career, all things considered, starting all the way from Bay of Pigs all the way to present day, what would you say? I've covered a lot of big stories, but it was actually the story of uh, a carpenter in Philadelphia that to me was the most touching story and affected me the most. His name was Amo Lobianco. And I think he was a carpenter plumber. I'm not sure. I have to check my own book to figure it out. Uh, and uh, he went down to Houston to receive one of the first heart transplant operations that would save his life. And I asked him if it was okay if I went with him. So we came kind of close. And uh, he went to Dr. DeBakey. And it was at the big Houston Medical Center. And uh, so I went through the whole process. And then he, he went into the operation and he died. And to me, the fact that he was willing to have the courage to take the chance early on when there was so little known about it. And to me, uh, that was the most significant story because it was one person's life. You know, decision you made. I mean, there's a lot of great stories. You know, with the move confrontation, Frank Rizzo's career, Tom Ridge, the White House, uh, the war in Vietnam, seven trips to the Middle East, and uh, certain, certainly the stories of, of individual people in Philadelphia. This is a great area. And uh, this current memo we have is because of the lack of leadership. Is there anybody on television or radio in city government who's saying, we're coming for you? We're coming for you, we're going to arrest you, and we're going to send you to jail. Why is anybody saying that? I, I, I leave it with one thought. In 2007, on KYW Radio, I did a show called Breakfast with the Candidates. And um, somewhere in that show, Shaka Fatah, was running, congressman running for mayor, said, I have a right not, not to be frisked. Stop it, Frist. And Michael Nutter said something along the lines of, I have a right not to be shot. And now, Stop and Frisk is coming back. We're talking about it. So the same progressives who ripped down uh, Frank Rizzo's and, and, the Mar and covered up the Marconi uh, statue at South Philadelphia monument are now, we need to Frisk. We may need to bring it back. Suddenly, the, the entire thing is transitioning from uh, uh, a, a very progressive, let's protect the cops, let's protect the people from bad cops. And there are bad cops. And people should not be abused by police officers because of their color. They should not be arrested by police officers. They should not be shot 60 times by police officers. But on the other hand, who's going to protect us? Somebody has to have the backs of the cops too. And right now they don't feel very supported. 
So, you know, we, we live in a time when uh, we have to value people. I mean, look, the great heroes of American life are police officers, doctors, nurses. And by the way, it's my opinion after spending a lot of time around hospitals that nurses are really the biggest power of the hospital. Sorry about that, Doc. Absolutely. They're incredible. They, they are, they are the heart and soul of the hospital. And good doctors know that. And, uh, and people like you, I mean, your, your stuff on the radio uh, is so clear that you, you tell it just like it is. You let people make their choices. And I think that's why you've been so successful. And you know, it's interesting. Dr. Oz was a different kind of doctor on television, more of an entertainer. And now he's got to deal with real issues. And this is hard for him. It's hard for all these politicians. And he's running against a guy who's sick and he's going to have to recover. So you're seeing all the vagaries of life come together. This is a very, very interesting year and a year of uh, tremendous uh, change. And I think that the Pennsylvania elections are going to be very exciting by the time they're over. Well, what's your advice, by the way, during this year to stay emotionally uh, well? Should they just keep busy? What's that? I'm sorry. Should they? What's your advice for people to stay emotionally well? Should they just keep busy? I I will tell you, um, I have seen more people struggling right now in this environment post COVID. Uh, with all the changes, with all those things. I think I have a prescription that I think works. The first is if you can try to get some exercise. Right. If you can have something that's a distraction that you like, that gets you out of watching TV all the time, listening to the radio all the time, but get yourself away, whether it's writing, whether it's reading a book, whether it's gardening, you need something to get away. I told somebody the other day, the most therapeutic thing I did probably in the last three weeks was power washing furniture because it was mindless and I got something done. You need to do other things and you need to happy open. And, and those things make you happy. And Larry, I think you said something very true. You have to be optimistic and you have to hope for things that are better and believe things can be better. Because you're right. It's cyclical. Things go up, they go down. We tend to make the same mistakes over and over again as a people, but hopefully we learn. And when we learn, we get a little bit better. And I do see, I, when I get optimistic, I look at the generation of people in their 20s and 30s. They don't carry a lot of the baggage that older generations have. They seem to be more open. You know, they don't, they're not looking at racial and sexual and social issues. They're looking more at trying to be nice to other people. And if that's the future. That's what we have to do. We have to start to open up. More, they're more interested in quality of life to a fault. Yes. We change jobs every three months. But <laughs> well, I can tell you, yeah, there are issues. But but the, but but I think that's the goal. So to stay healthy and to stay happy, um, obviously, exercise, good diet, but give yourself things you enjoy. And it sounds trite. But when you do good things for other people, it actually gets you the greatest happiness of all. I really believe that to be the case. Try not to, to acquire, you know, try to give. And I think if we did more of that, we'd all be better off. But I want to thank you for taking all this time and for all you've done. And I love the fact that we have yet another campaign season. And you're going to be in there and I can listen to what your points are because you will be objective. 
and you will talk about pros and cons, and that helps people as they make. I try to open up the closed doors to people so they understand what's really going on. You know, there's a lot of nuances that people don't get. For example, in the uh, recent election, uh, there was was something that happened that was so startling to me. Uh, Kathy Barnett, an African-American woman running for the U.S. Senate, decided early on, before anybody knew, to campaign with Doug Mastriano. And by doing that, she went to about 47 churches with him. She put her face on the globe of the imagery of central Pennsylvania. And she almost got elected. And she she, she was the spoiler between Dr. Oz and, and Dave McCormick. And the, and the parties did get, they didn't get what she was doing. It was very clever. And I reported it and nobody believed it. Yeah. The point is that you have to look for what's really behind, behind the facade. Uh, uh, the uh, Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman uh, is, looks like a tough guy who can ride a motorcycle into New Hope on a Saturday afternoon with his family. And he's actually a very low-key guy. And, you know, so every, everybody's different. And Josh is a magnificent politician. Doug Mastriano is, knows his audience. He knows what to do. Uh, it's a uh, very interesting time, very interesting life. And hopefully this COVID variant will not be as bad as we think it is. Well, Larry, you stay healthy and thank you so much. And I appreciate it. And uh, we'll stay in touch. But thank you for taking the time and joining us on the show. I think a lot of people probably really enjoyed what you had to say. And we appreciate it. I appreciate being with you. Thank you. Thank you. The Dr. Brian McDonough Show.